So this is our, our final week on hope. And we wanted to look at hope. Uh, I told you I was a little bit like nervous to take it on. I think it's hard sometimes to speak at hope when you know that people are, are going through it, when it's not, life's not easy, when things are, are challenging. And so we really felt like the, the way to hope that the scriptures teach us is oftentimes starting with lament, uh, starting with the, the sense of like things are not as they should be. Let me cry out to you, God, in the midst of the things that are going on in my life that aren't as they, 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 like they seem that they should be or they're, they're not as good as I had hoped they would be or I'm disappointed or I'm angry or I'm frustrated. And then we went last week we talked about how hope in the scriptures are oftentimes uh, uh, the, the writers encourage people to remember to look back to, as a means to get to hope is to recall the faithfulness of God. Maybe it hasn't, it's not happening for you in that specific day, but God has been faithful and he will be faithful. And so we had our, our stones of help last week, our Ebenezer stones, to remind us of the faithfulness of God in the midst of our lives, even if we sometimes struggle in the current. And this week I want to focus on Hebrews 10, as Kevin just read. I read this verse last week when I said we'd go more in depth, and so I think uh, we're ready to do that today. Will you pray with me as we get started? God, we, uh, we exalt you and we just praise your name, the everlasting, holy, good, loving God. And today we invite you to speak to us. We are open to your word. We're open to being corrected, if needing correct, correcting. We're open to encouragement. We're open to... Uh, you helping us see the ways in which you have been so good to us. And God, would you help us in this moment to draw near to you, to go with confidence into uh, your holy place, because you are present with us. Amen. So we did not go through the whole book of Hebrews. And because we didn't go through the whole book of Hebrews, this may not seem like as climactic of a passage as it's supposed to be. Because almost everything that the author of Hebrews is doing is building up to this moment, this passage of Scripture. He's gone through arguments on Jesus and calling up ideas and images of, of, uh, that are, would be familiar to the people, maybe unfamiliar to the audience that he's writing to. He's shaping and he's polishing and he's, expos uh, you know, he's telling us more and more about Jesus, God's Son the truly human one, the great high priest, the mediator of a new covenant. And now he says, in light of all of that, let's come and let's worship. Let's come and let's worship the God that's made a way. So there's a summary of kind of everything that's come before, and then there's three exhortations He starts off the passage, anytime you see therefore, you know this is like therefore because of what I just said. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place because of the blood of Jesus, because we have been redeemed and have a brand new living faith through his body, and we have a high priest because he's over the, because high priest who's over the house of God, and then he says, let us do these things, three things. And exhortations, if you, if you haven't, aren't familiar with that word, it's essentially this emphatic urging for people to do something. Emphatic urging. My 
uh, daughter and my wife have this common thing that they do. They, they say these sorts of things. They're like, I'll be around the house and they'll say, you should go do that. You should go clean the bathroom if you're not doing anything else. You should go get this from the car if you're not doing anything else. You should, you should, you should. And I just, honestly, I don't respond to the you should super well. <laughs> I just tell my wife, I said, listen, I'll do anything for you. Can you just ask me instead of saying you should do this? Right? It's just like one of my things. They both do it all the time. I don't know what it is about me, but I look at them like, you should. Can you just say, would you? Could you? Or as the author of Hebrews does here, which I think is helpful, he doesn't just say, you should do these things. He says, let us, right? He says, let us boldly come, verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. He's going to great lengths to say we can approach God with boldness. With boldness. I mean, boldness here has the connotations of freedom, with permission, with authorization, with authority in some ways. We get to walk in to the presence of God with freedom and permission and authority and authorization because of what Jesus has accomplished at the, at the cross. This is what is being said here. Because of what Jesus has done, because of his sacrifice for our sin, we can enter into that holy place. We can go where the high priest is, the great high priest, which Jesus is called in this passage. We can go into the holies of holies. We have a right to be there. We have a right to be right where Christ is. Think about that. Because we have been given Christ's righteousness. Jesus has opened that way for us. So we have confidence or boldness that this is, and I think about, I love that, like this confidence, bold, not arrogance, right? It's not talking about walking arrogantly in front of God. He's talking about with this confidence that leads to action, that enables action. And this derives, this comes from this inner renewal that takes place in us. That we have this whole new life in Christ. That the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. That when God looks at us, he doesn't see our old self, he sees our new self. That we're not living in the old covenant, but we're living in the new covenant. And I love this because it says that our hearts should be clean from guilt and shame, that we should be wiped clean from the waters of baptism. It says we have a sprinkled heart and a washed body. Some people think this is an allusion to uh, Aaron in the Old Testament when he was essentially consecrated to do his work as a priest. Other people think that he's actually just talking about uh, the ritual and the, the sacrament of baptism that the church is practicing during that time period. Uh, it's a little bit, we're a little bit unsure about what, because he hasn't talked about baptism at all up until this point, so just kind of throw that in. So maybe he's talking about Aaron, maybe he's talking about a little baptism, but the idea is you're being cleansed with sin and you're being raised with Christ, right? You've been washed 
pure and clean. So you have this boldness. You have this ability to walk into the throne room of God and experience the real presence of God. You are welcomed there. This is a big deal. So many people um, treat God, I think, as this, like, this fear-mongering God that's waiting to condemn, waiting to judge, waiting to get them. Even people that would you know, claim to be followers of Jesus, I think, live in fear of what God is going to do, what God is going to say. And so they're, they shy away. They're unwilling to walk into boldness, uh, with boldness into the God's presence. It keeps them from God. In their lives. It keeps them from experiencing God in their life. It keeps them from the power of God to live a new way because they're afraid. Now, others may say, uh, Of course, God welcomes me into his presence. And that's okay. But I think the Hebrew author wants us to see this is a big deal. The, the, the God of the universe is, is holy and righteous and good. And certainly loving, and that's why he died on the cross for us. But, but not anybody could just enter into the holies of holies in the Old Testament. Not anybody could just do what the high priest is doing. Not anyone could walk boldly into the throne room of God with, with, with authority and freedom and permission. And so what took place when Jesus died for us and lived the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserved, is this freedom, is this permission, is this wiping away, this cleansing, as the Bible talks about in so many different ways. And it really matters. And so that should be really encouraging for us. So the author is saying, let us do this. Let's, let's do this thing. Let's worship the result of everything that I've just talked about the previous nine or ten and a half chapters is to lead us to this place where we are in awe and we are ready to worship the God of the universe who has invited us in. And we can go there with confidence. Second exhortation, second urging to do something is not you should do this, but let us hold unswervingly to our confession of hope. Let us hold unswervingly to our confession of hope. Verse 23 is where that says, and this is what it says at the very end. For he who promised is faithful. That could be translated trustworthy. And this is really the heart of the issue when it comes to hope. This is really where it comes down to like the nitty gritty. Is Jesus trustworthy? The author of Hebrews is saying the reason that we can hope and the reason that we can have, like, is because Jesus is trustworthy. Because he who promised these things is faithful to complete them. The basis for hope without wavering, is the faithfulness of God, is the trustworthiness of God. Specifically, God's faithfulness in Jesus because he does what he promises. It does take a while to earn someone's unswerving hope or trust, does it not? Like, 
That's, a, that's not, a, I don't trust most of you that way. <laughs> uh, I think about that as a parent a lot. How do I convince my children, not like in an evil conniving way, but like a, the, the, in a good way, that I'm actually trustworthy? That when I say that uh, they're going to be like safe, that I'm going to show up, that I'm going to be on time, that I'm going to be there for them, that I, I love them with <laughs> in, in incredible compassion and love, a love that they can't even understand, that they'll believe that. And for a group of people that have been wronged by probably many people in our lives, even other Christians, maybe pastors, maybe people, priests, maybe other people, parents, grandparents have hurt you and wronged you, the people that you're supposed to be able to trust. It is very hard to trust God in this way. And I think it goes back to a lot of what we talked about last week is to remember God's faithfulness, is to remember that God has been trustworthy, that he actually does what he claims he's going to do. And that's most specifically seen in the person, in the work of Jesus. God's faithfulness is well attested in both the Old and New T Testament. He is completely reliable. And that... This description of God as faithful reminds the listeners that his promises are the basis of their hope and the basis of our hope. Dallas Willard uh, made a, a really great point, and I, I can't remember which book this was from, but I had it written down somewhere. This is what he says. What must be emphasized in all of this is the difference between trusting Christ, the real person Jesus, with all that that naturally involves versus trusting some arrangement for sin remission set up through him, trusting only his role as a guilt remover. To trust the real person of Jesus is to have confidence in him in every dimension of our real life, to believe that he is right about and adequate about everything, ad adequate to everything. What I think he... Dallas Willard is trying to say is for a lot of us, we've positioned Jesus as the guilt remover, but not necessarily right and adequate about everything else, right and true about everything else in our lives. And so we may trust Jesus <laughs> to remove our sin because that's what we've been told our whole lives. If you believe that you, you know, you'll have salvation in Jesus, but we don't trust Jesus about the everyday activities, about the, the little things, the small things, about uh, you know, the, even just the promises of God for the future. It's to have confidence. Hope is to have confidence in Jesus in every dimension of our lives. And hope is important because hope sustains us, does it not? I've shared this example uh, one or two times before. So many of you are new to our church. So I'm going to just use it again. Uh, you know, why not, right? That's the best thing about, like, you know, some of these pastors that get to go around and preach everywhere. It's like nobody's ever heard anything you've ever said. You can put your best stuff in there, your best stuff. So I want you to imagine 
that uh, you had to work the worst job that you can possibly imagine. Okay, so it's for some people that may look very different than others. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Like, what is the worst job that you can possibly imagine? And at the end of a year, you will receive $100 for your labor. So you have to work 52 weeks every single day at the worst job you can possibly imagine. At the end of the year, you will receive $100. That would be a pretty miserable year, would it not? You're not allowed to do any other jobs. It's not very exciting to think about receiving $100 at the end of the year working full-time at the worst job you can possibly imagine. Now I want you to imagine that same job, the worst job you can possibly imagine, and you have to work it for 52 weeks, full-time, but at the end of the year, you will receive, let's just say, a billion dollars. Any number that you want to imagine. Okay, as much money as you can possibly imagine. I don't know about you, it would be a tough year, right? Like, it would be tough to have to do the job, the worst job you can possibly imagine for an entire year. But I'd have a little skip in my step, I don't know about you, to know that at the end of that year, I would still want to work, but I could do whatever I wanted to do, right? Like, the rest of my life, I could, I mean, hopefully I would think of good things to do with that money beyond just, like, serve myself. But it would be very freeing to know that you never have to do the worst job you could possibly imagine, and you have money to do really what you're passionate about or what you feel like is most important. The whole, the whole idea that is just to show that like hope matters, like what you believe about the future, what you think about what's going to happen in a year from now, in 10 years from now, in 20 years, like, or in, in the Christian life, when we die, the promises of God for our lives and for our children and their children, all those things, to have that type of hope really matters. It makes a big difference. Now, maybe money doesn't drive you at all. You can do it with another example, right? But I think you get the point. Hope changes our perspective in our day-to-day lives. It changes us to consider what will be instead of simply just what is in the moment. Now, sometimes that can be probably unhelpful, right? Because you're not considering the bad things that are happening today and you don't care about those things. So it's possible to care about those things and also have hope that they're going to change and that God's going to redeem all those, all things, right? At the same time. So the third exhortation is this. It says, let us not stop meeting together, but instead stir each other's minds toward energetic effort and love and good works. That's a lot to say. Let us not stop meeting together. Verses 24 and 25. Let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. There is nothing in the text of Hebrews that really tells us why people stopped meeting together. Some people have speculated that the next few chapters talk about some persecution that the church is facing. So some people have said, well, maybe they're afraid. Maybe they're afraid to show up because they're afraid that they will be persecuted. They will be hurt for their faith. Um, But that's just speculation. The reasons that they (laughs) don't show up to meet together uh, for for, uh, meeting with other Christians may be the same ones that that we have. Uh, We're lazy, right? We just neglect that aspect of 
our lives. But there's something here for us, and I think specifically in the 21st century, is that there's a, there is a, a, a warning here in some ways to say, like, it's really important that we meet together. It's really important to have a community of faith that is spurring you on towards love and good deeds. And it's a little bit weird for me because um, it's, it, is, it is strange to promote coming to church when you're the pastor, right? Like you feel like there's a little bit of a, um, uh, yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. It's a little self-serving, right? In many ways, my uh, livelihood is based upon people showing up and being participants here. And the last thing, I, I don't, I think fear is a motivating factor. I don't think it's a good one, right? But there does seem to be some sense where um, not coming and meeting together is a significant thing in this passage. Giving up on meeting together uh, is, is leading you f- uh, farther away from Jesus, farther away from those that are going to encourage you and help you and, and, and lead you. And I just want to say this. This is me, not as your pastor, okay? Just imagine that this has nothing to do. Uh, I, I, I recognize that people have been hurt by churches, have been hurt by pastors, have been hurt by other leaders. I realize that not every experience is a good one. I, I recognize uh, all of those things, and please hear me, I know that those are true. I'm not going to pass those things by. But I will say this. In the 20 years that I've been a Christian, I've watched lots of people tell me that they are no longer interested in the institutional church. They're going to go practice spirituality, but they're not really into like the church or even like a small group of people, not even just like this entity, like a 501c3 in the United States of America. I, I know very few people that when that is their choice for the long term, not in the short term to take a break or to, you know, to, to deal with certain things that have happened in their past or to move to a different space or move to a different, like those sorts of things I'm not talking about. I'm talking about prolonged decision to move away from Christian community. I haven't seen it work. <laughs> uh, most of those people, if not all those people, have eventually walked away from Jesus. Now, I don't know if that's their, the way things will continue on. I don't know, but that's typically what happens. And so this is not me as your pastor, but as your friend. To say, I think that we undervalue sometimes how important it is to have people in our lives that are following Jesus with us. That are pushing us towards love and good works. It is lonely to be by yourself. And though individual spirituality is so important, it is so important what you do on your own time with Jesus and, and in your relationship with God. It is so important. I would say just as important is coming together, and I think this is what the author of Hebrews is saying, is like coming together to worship. Coming together to praise the name of the one 
who did it for us. And I think when we don't do that, and we just kind of give up, because maybe we like to sleep in, so maybe as simple as that. Or maybe we're just frustrated, like all the people at church are kind of weird, right? I remember saying that to my dad. I was like, I was 21. I said, you know, Christians are kind of weird. He's like, yeah. Isn't it interesting? And this is what he said. The gospel seems to draw all these people in, right? The good news of Jesus. And I was like, I wasn't thinking of it that way. It's like a positive. I was thinking of it as a kind of a negative dad. But, you know, he was saying, no, this is a good thing. He's like, and you're kind of weird too. Think about what you're doing, like, with your life. And I was like, okay, maybe you're right. And so sometimes we get frustrated because I think it's, you know, maybe we don't have the closest friends or maybe other people have left or other people are, are making different choices than you're making. I, I just want to say to you, um, let's not stop meeting together. It has nothing to do with this entity staying in existence or anything else, but I really believe that the author here is right that we are in need of stirring one another towards effort and love and good works. It's like if you ever played um, like on a team or, you know, I don't know, we're in a, a band, we're in any sort of thing where it was like a collective group together. Now, I know people that are very internally motivated and they will exercise and they will work out or they'll practice their instruments or they'll do their things all the time. But there is something different when someone else is encouraging you to do that as well. When someone else is pushing you to be better at what you're doing every single day. When someone else is calling you on the phone and says, I'm going to go practice at this time. Do you want to join me? Uh, I was thinking about... I. I not, this is not a, a humble brag. This is me just giving an example. Uh, when I did the triathlon, whenever I trained with someone else, I went faster every single time because I wanted to keep up with that person. Or that person might say, hey, Dave, let's try to go faster this next mile. Or there are the ways and areas that they were faster than I was pushed me to go faster in my weak areas and made me stronger in my stronger areas. And just it's, it's the way that we are wired is that we are pushed by being around people that want to encourage us and push us and challenge us. So it's unsurprising if that happens, whether we're playing athletics or we're in music or we're you know, in a band or we're doing whatever else we're interested in. It's unsurprising that that would be true for us in faith as well. That when we gather around other people and other people share about what God is doing in their lives or they have an insight into scripture that makes something come alive uh, in your mind for the first time, it, 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 it's just compelling, is it not? I was sitting in the, the first Samuel Bible study, and this is not a plug for the first Samuel because it's shut down. You can't join at this point. It's too late. You missed out if you didn't join the first two weeks. Sorry. And you did miss out. But the first week, people were sharing all these insights into the first couple chapters. And I, I'll be honest with you. I was like, ah, you know, 1 Samuel, we'll see, you know. Like, and I, was, I mean, I was just like 
I was like so excited. I was like, this is amazing. Like all these connections to other aspects of, of scripture, all these things that made me recognize the goodness of God. Uh, like all these things I learned from Hannah's prayer in, in the first couple chapters. I mean, I was coming alive in Jesus just listening to other people talk about the Bible. And that may not happen every single time you were somebody else, but it does happen. It is encouraging. I walked out of there ready to read the next few chapters, ready to live my life differently in certain particular ways that we applied the text to our lives. And so this passage ends with this statement. It says, let us not stop meeting together or give up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And then it says, all the more as you see the day approaching. And so most people believe that this is the coming day of the Lord. And the listeners uh, that were already sharing in the powers of the age to come. And so he's probably regarding their gathering together as an anticipation of the final ingathering of all God's people in the new heavens and the new earth. So this assembly, this gathering it together, whether it's just a few people or it's a hundred people or it's thousands of people, it's supposed to be this reflection of what this assembly, this gathering will be in the new heavens and the new earth when all of God's people are worshiping and praising the name of the one who has been faithful and good. So when we gather together in this way or in small groups or in Bible studies or even just having meals together, I believe that God is present. In my experience, stuff happens when we worship Stuff happens when we sing, when we pray, when we read the scriptures, when we take communion together, when we have fellowship, when we challenge one another, spur one another on. We spur one another on to love other people better, to do good things in the world, to be good neighbors to those around us, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, that Jesus is, is trustworthy and good. We need the encouragement of one another.